Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky. This podcast is focused on educating operators, building better systems, and becoming a best-in-class operator. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz, and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Jeremy Roll. Jeremy started investing in real estate in 2002, left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. Jeremy manages over 1,500 investors who seek passive managed cash flowing investments. He is the co-founder of Four Investors by Investors, which I personally love attending in Los Angeles. And Jeremy has an MBA from Warren and is an advisor for Realty Mogul. Welcome, Jeremy. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. And thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I have been a investing in alternative investments like real estate since 2002. And I, after the dot-com crash, I started to rotate my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow of those types of investments because I was just sick and tired of the lack of predictability and the volatility of the stock market. But frankly, just the lack of predictability is what bothered me the most. And so I rotated all my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow. And then in 2007, I had a last draw moment in the corporate world. I was working at Toyota headquarters here in Los Angeles, and I decided to leave the corporate world because I had the cash flow built up to live off of. So I have been a full-time, I call myself passive cash flow investor for 15 years now, been investing in these types of opportunities for about 20 years. And I always, I'm always passive. So I always invest as a passive investor where someone else is doing the work. I've never been active in really anything. Well, well, I'm excited to have you. You know, today we're going to talk about asset classes and markets that you're bullish or bearish on, and and I know you warned me ahead of time that you're you tend to be more more bearish, which I, which I knew, and and I welcome that opportunity to have someone that you know can come on the show that has a, a differing viewpoint than me, and as well as most of our listeners too, and someone that I, I highly respect. So let's jump in. You know, what are some of your biggest concerns that you have regarding the the market right now, as far as for multifamily? Okay. So I'm a very data oriented guy. And so where I try to get my bias from, so to speak, whether it's bullish or bearish is just based off of the market data. And if you look at 2021, I call that kind of the year of tailwinds for investors. There was an unbelievable amount of money, money printing record amount. There was quantitative easing. There was all kinds of pandemic emergency assistance programs, mortgage forbearance, eviction moratoriums, and all the rest of the stuff I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. 2022 to me, 
appears to be the year of the headwinds, which is almost the opposite. And so my concern is that a lot of the pandemic emergency programs are now done, most of them, not all of them, there's some local ones and stuff that aren't, but, and then you have the quantitative easing ending per the Fed. We're recording this now in February of 2022. So we're about to potentially see interest rate hikes. And if you look at the savings rate of the consumer, you'll see that it it was much higher during the pandemic when a lot of money was just handed to them through the money printing. But now that's actually all done and that it's back to normal. And that means that they're kind of, you know, they have some, a little bit of excess saving compared to normal, but they're pretty much tapped out. So what happened is that a lot of consumer demand was pulled forward and now that money is gone. And so my concern for multifamily specifically for 2022 is, are we going to see increase in interest rates, which is what the Fed is telling us work is going to happen. And what happens when that happens normally is that that results in cap rates going up and valuations coming down over time. It doesn't happen on the first rate hike, or maybe not even the second, but it happens eventually. Unfortunately, as well, historically, if you look at historics, the last 11 recessions in the last century, eight out of the last 11, when the Fed hiked rates three times or more, it actually led to a recession. The only other times that where it didn't lead to recession were during the two world wars and during the Great Depression, obviously all anomalies. And so the probability, I'm just a numbers guy. So I'm telling everybody here is like the probability in my mind is that we're going to have a recession if they hike three or more times. I'm just going off of past data. And so as an investor, my concern is that we're going to potentially see asset prices adjusting. Now, there's another concern I have, which I'm going to mention first time on a podcast, but I've been talking to a lot of people and through phone calls. And I'm curious to know if you've thought of this, Gary. So inflation, this year, it's a huge problem. And if you believe the government, then we're at 7% inflation. But if you believe the way they used to calculate it before they changed it in 1982, we're actually at 15% inflation. And I'm just going to use a random person because a lot of people know him. I don't know. God, now I'm blanking on his name. Very big investor, has a couple billion. Ken McElroy. Are you familiar with him? Absolutely. Okay. So really big syndicator, has a couple billion in apartments, been investing for many years. He has already said that based on locked in contracts for his expenses, he sees 13% expense inflation, real number, like not just me saying, oh, the data is this one, it's adjusted. No, that's actual real numbers based on his locked in contracts, 13% expense inflation across his properties is here. Now, the question is, when you take a look at revenue, is revenue and whatever market you're looking at going to be able to keep pace with 13% or not? And if the answer is no, even if it's 10, then what's crazy, and I'm having trouble wrapping my arms around because it's the first time in 20 years, is that the net operating income of the building will actually be lower at the end of the year than it was at the beginning of the year. And that implies that even at the same cap rates, then apartments have the possibility of being worth less at the end of the year than the beginning of the year. And that's something that people haven't talked about that I haven't heard about. I, I, I literally keep asking people, have you thought about this? Year? No one has said I've thought about that yet. And then when you actually think about it for a second, it makes perfect sense, right? In this really weird environment. And so if you believe the inflation numbers that I mentioned, which you may or may not, then then that's definitely a threat for someone who's looking to invest in an apartment today as well. So those are some of my concerns. So as a result, I'm kind of taking more of a, a sitting on the sidelines approach, which I, you know, I'm very well known to do when I'm very uncertain. I tend to I really tend to stay away from a lack of predictability and risk. And I usually stay on the sidelines. So it's just another year on the sidelines here while I'm watching all that happen. Great, great points. When 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 we underwrite properties, I mean, we're very conservative. So a two-storm property we have now, I think they're predicting over 36% rent over the next five years. Now, we would never underwrite to that degree. You know, we are 0% year one because there's so much loss of lease. Over the next few years, we're at, you know, four, 
three and a half, three, you know, going, going forward. So we're at, you know, a total of maybe like 14%. So that, that gives us some, some hedge of, of what we're thinking because not we, yeah, we don't build in inflation costs of, of 13% or, or, or whatnot, but that is something, you know, you have to look at your expenses to, to, you know, obviously labor is, is not going up, you know, your standard would say 2%, you know, you've got to build in a significant amount for that. Right. And I will say one thing. It's funny because ironically, Ken McElroy's main market has been Arizona for a while. But but at the same time, Arizona and some specific markets have gone up a ton. Like they've gone up much higher in terms of rent growth. So you actually may have the rent increase power that I'm talking about that might be necessary to actually manage in your market. But and I'm saying that because that's just the fact of what Arizona has been doing in the last 12 to 18 months. But in a lot of other markets in the U.S., that could be a big problem. Yeah. Also, you know, where some of the, you know, you, you, you read one report, it could say something and, and another report and something else, but you know, the reports that I've read are, were over $5 million, 5 million housing units short. And uh, we be, continue to become a renter nation because affordability is, is that much harder people living longer, you know, again, if you're depending upon your area, you could, that you invest in, you could take advantage of those, of those, places where people are are migrating to and so you you've got these you know these you know tailwinds that you can you can ride you know yes and that's actually been a big factor in the past years and the pandemic accelerated it was funny because pre-pandemic the top two markets for example for population migration to were projected to be texas and florida and now those two states, as well as Arizona and some other southern states, have really benefited from an acceleration as a result of the pandemic. So to your point, real estate's always market specific. And even in the best of times, some markets are declining, right? And so it's really important to analyze a specific market. And I do think that Arizona is a really good example. And I'm saying this because you're in it, that I think it's a really good example of a market that just had unusually high demand and continues to be very strong demand, along with Florida and Texas, for example, that's benefiting from being able to, to manage the inflation that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, we the results that we've been able to achieve in the last couple of years make me look much smarter than I am. You know, we obviously we put in a lot of work to you know to to buy in the markets that we thought were going to succeed in the future, but but yeah, I mean it's no no one could have, you know, predicted, you know, during covid you're able to, you know, raise rents and 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 the, the where the cap rates have been going. It's it's insane. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny because all this artificial nature, the more artificial the market is, and it has been based on the money printing, everything you're talking about, the less inclined I am to invest because my my numerical brain is just like, okay, I want to be able to take the past and be a smart investor and figure out what's going to happen in the future and then have some predictability. And that's been completely out the window for me. We didn't even talk about supply chain shortages causing other problems and all this stuff, right? So it's been pretty nuts in the past 12 to 24 months for sure. So are there any any asset classes, markets, or opportunities that that you that are, are interesting to you at least so that you might look a little bit further? Yeah. Well, so what I've been doing, because I mean, look, inflation is very high. And for me to sit on cash is detrimental because every day that goes by, the cash is worth less. And especially now, more so than normal. So I, I've kind of had to pivot and I created three different verticals of stuff that I'm focused on right now that I'm comfortable with. The first is short term, either opportunities that are shorter term or have a very quick payback period. And so really good example is I've always done this. I've done this for many, many years. Every year I do some hard money lending, which is lending against people who are flipping single family homes. 
in first position. And what I like about that is last year I, I did a record amount for myself because you know the supply and demand imbalance in single family was in very big favor to investors, as we all know. This year, I think it's still going to be a net positive situation, although at a slower pace. So I'm going to put quite a lot of money into that. And then what's also going to result from that for me, which hopefully that goes well, is that I'll have access to my capital towards the end of the year again, and they'll be able to reassess and see how asset prices just or not, what are the current market conditions, and then reevaluate and then start to deploy for next year again. So that's number, that's kind of vertical one is short-term stuff where I can get my money back relatively quickly so I can redeploy it in case asset prices adjust. Second vertical is just very unique or unusual opportunities. You and I were talking about this before we started recording, but I invested in a whole bunch of apartment buildings last year that were tax abated. That's very unique, very unusual structures, but they that structure created a lot of padding that made me comfortable. And the, the whole purpose of it for me was not about the built-in equity closing in terms of being, oh, upside. It's all about the downside risk mitigation. So anything unusual, like anytime you're investing, there's always unusual deals. Deals can make sense at any time, depending on the market and what you can find. So it's never good to just sit on the sidelines and not pay attention to anything because you will miss deals that are unusual that will still fit your criteria, right? So that's kind of bucket number two. Bucket number three is mostly non-real estate, but it's it's assets that are already going to depreciate. And so I don't have to worry about price adjustments, which is my number one concern right now for the, for the coming year. And so great example is, and by the way, where I still think the cash flow is sustainable because I'm a cash flow guy, right? So I think the high probability of sustainability of cash flow. So I've been investing in ATM machines since 2008, gotten to know the industry very, very well over the last 14 years. And that ATM is literally a computer a case a bill feeder, a keyboard, and a screen, right? That's all going to zero practically. I mean, we basically the stuff I typically expect about a 5% residual in five to seven years, right? So I don't care if, if that goes down more quickly in value. What I care about is sustainability and predictability of the cash flow. So that's a great example of something where I don't have to worry about values adjusting. Let me just focus on the business. Is it going to sustain? Can that make sense today? So those are the three buckets I've been doing while waiting for the stuff that I really like the best, to be honest, like multifamily and a couple other asset classes, because I just want the cash flow stabilized, highly occupied tenant base with experienced sponsor like you, Gary. But I'm just having trouble swallowing that today from a timing perspective. So, and so where do you where do you want the market to be before you start diving back into multifamily on a regular basis? Yeah, great question. So if you look historically again at typical uh, cap rate adjustments that occur based off of interest rate increases and, and end of cycle timing and everything, very commonly you'll see 150 to 200 basis 250 basis point change in cap rates. Now, this is a little bit different time because we are already so compressed. I don't know if we're going to get that level because on a percentage basis, that would be a much larger percentage change than in the past, right? Because cap rates tend to have, have been higher in the past. But I'm going to be looking for at least 100, 150 basis point adjustment just to be really comfortable. And, and again, like I said, I mean, unique deals can come at any time. So it doesn't have to be that I wait one or two or three years. It could be tomorrow if it's the right deal. But that's kind of the benchmark of what I'll be looking for before I can get really comfortable with it. And it's interesting, the reports that you read out there, you know, when it says, oh, I'm looking at the Tucson market and cap rates are, I saw a report, it was like 5% cap rates. I'm like, I haven't seen a deal with a 5% cap rate in like a year and a half. I don't know where they're getting their data from, you know? Yeah. I mean, it depends who's publishing it, what their motive is, what type of asset, like what quality of asset they're talking about. There's so many factors. Yeah. That's the one thing about those reports. Cause you know, I see sometimes like the average cap rate for multifamily in the U S is X. I mean, that's almost meaningless, right? Because it just all depends on what you're looking at, how big the building is, where it's located. I mean, so many factors. So 
I mean, my opinion is I just don't see the cap rates going going up much. You know, you've got you know so much foreign money, and and the, you know there's nowhere else to put it. And they look at our cap rates, and they're like, "Wow, this is great," you know. And and we're like, "Well, it's now a three and a half versus you know not too long ago it was a, a seven. But there's you know with and, and with so much institutional money, you know, buying up multifamily. I don't know. I don't. I don't think. It's going to adjust much, you know, if if at all. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and just trying to make sense of everything. And the one thing that I do agree with is that often people say that class A may adjust a little less than class B and class C. And that's something I could probably buy into to an extent, depends on the cap rate, I guess. But yeah, I mean, we'll just have to see. There is a ton of money chasing deals right now. One thing that does happen, though, if there is a recession, is that liquidity changes. And the changes in two ways. It changes on the equity side. Investors get scared. And, and by the way, that actually, we saw that happen in the pandemic for a month or two. Investors really seized up. I saw some people at buildings on a contract get really desperate, lower the minimums, take non-accredited investors as well, because they couldn't find investors at the time. So that's just a typical thing that happens when people are scared. Probably even more importantly, though, is the lack of liquidity on the lending side. And that's something we'll just have to see what happens because there's so much liquidity today. Will that really be impacted very much or not this particular time around? We'll have to see. I like just going with the, I always just go, again, quantitative in my head. Historically, yes, that'll probably be impacted, but we'll have to see, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I've I've been through, you know, times where, yeah, you know, 2009 when, you know, we had line of credit and it just, they're like, well, you need to, you need to pay it back immediately. And we're like, we we don't we don't have the money where everyone else that owes us doesn't have the money. Like you're gonna have to just sit and wait. It's when when liquidity dries up, it shuts. It's scary. It is very very scary. There there is a building. I live in LA and I lived in Santa Monica back in 2009. And there was a probably I don't know how many units. It was probably 80 or 100 unit apartment building that was built that was. 90% complete because I knew the owners, the last tranche of money they were supposed to get was the landscaping to get the full certificate of occupancy. And they could not get the last tranche. They could not find money for it. Literally got foreclosed. And you're looking at this building and it's literally ready to go with landscaping missing. And it it just took a couple of years to get foreclosed and stuff, but it's just unbelievable what can happen sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, We've 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 had some some amazing amazing years and and people I'm bullish but it would be completely foolish of me that if I if I wasn't you know paying more attention to these things and and, and other investors out there as well to to be more cautious to to make sure you have plenty of extra cash reserves and and you know don't worry about you know raise extra money be you know. Be, pad, pad, pad. You know, if you if you knock it out of the park, fantastic. But you you can't you can't be too thin on uh, on your reserves and your underwriting. You're going to get into trouble. Yeah, and another thing that you know some people could consider doing is lowering their target loan to values or how much debt they're taking on because that will help. And that is just automatic additional padding where they have to raise more equity, but it's more padding in case something goes wrong. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We had a, a really good debate and 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 a lot of great information for our listeners. If you could tell them where they could find out more about you. Yeah, sure. Look, I don't really have a website or anything, but the easiest way to reach me, anyone is welcome to reach out to me. I'm happy to network with other fellow investors, whether they're new or experienced. If I can help someone that's new, that's great too. Any other investor groups who want to network, I'm happy to network and any other sponsors. Even I'm always looking to, to look for new opportunities. The best way to reach me is my uh, email. 
which is J-Roll, J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S, dot com. So J-Roll at RollInvestments.com. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for coming on. This is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. 